Hello there, it's great to see you again. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top stories in regulatory affairs with the help of our team of reporters around the globe. My name is James Paniki. Thank you for downloading the show. Now, if you're having business dealings with someone nicknamed the master of kickbacks, would that raise a red flag? Well, for most of us, the answer would no doubt be yes. But Credit Suisse? Well, not so much. The Zurich-based lender is facing eye-watering fines imposed in both the US and the UK over its business dealings in Mozambique. It's an extraordinary story and an illustration of the increasingly long arm of the US justice system. And Martin Coyle will join us from London in just over 10 minutes from now. But first, it's not easy keeping up with developments in the universe of app stores. Apple is hoping to have a judge sign off on a contentious settlement with small developers over accusations that the tech giant monopolised app distribution and in-app payments. While Google is halving the cut that it takes on app revenue in its Play Store for Android devices. Now, it's safe to assume that neither company would be taking this type of drastic action if they weren't coming under intense regulatory scrutiny. And that tells us something about the rapid pace of change we're observing at the moment. Now, when I said it's not easy keeping up with developments on this front, well, at least it's not impossible for MLEX subscribers who can rely on Michael Acton's reporting and analysis from Silicon Valley. And Mike joins me right now. So uh, let's recap for those unfamiliar with the story. Where do things stand for Apple and Google in terms of their legal fight over the control of what's uh, referred to as the app ecosystem? So there's sort of two big sets of cases out here in the California federal courts. First, the, the, the probably the more high profile one is um, Epic Games that sued Apple last year. And we got a, a judgment in September where Apple sort of won. It was a qualified victory. They they were cleared on the um, claims that they'd broken federal antitrust law, but um, the judge took issue with some of their rules around steering on the store um, under the California's unfair competition law. Uh, so both sides have appealed that, and that's a sort of process now going on in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, for Google, there's uh, it's still a, an open case. So uh, in that case, uh, Epic also sued Google for along similar lines, uh, arguing that it was sort of illegally monopolizing um, the app ecosystem on Android. And then later on, a group of state attorneys general led by Utah filed their own lawsuit. So that looks to be set, set to go to trial in uh, October next year. Um, and the difference in that case is it will go, by the looks of things, in front of a jury rather than um, a bench trial, with, uh, as, as was the case in the Apple case, um, with just one judge listening to the arguments and then issuing a ruling. Well, let's start with Apple. And what is the company hoping to convince the Epic Games judge to do in coming weeks? So the interesting thing is we had this big headline story that uh, she issued this ruling in the Epic Games case, which cleared Apple of the most serious charges against it. But there is a sort of afterlife to the case. Um, And in in US litigation, you have this complex situation where you have different classes of plaintiffs. Uh, So she's also overseeing uh, a lawsuit from a group of small developers um, these are sort of developers that um, sort of roughly under a, a, a million dollars on the on the store annually. And Apple reached a settlement with these small developers before her judgment in the Epic Games case. Uh, and it was much more limited. So it didn't, um, for instance, uh, her injunction order in the Epic case uh, ordered it to get rid of these rules that uh, prohibit 
uh, developers from steering cus- uh, customers to alternative payment mechanisms within their apps. This settlement is, is, it doesn't go that far, uh, and they agreed to pay out $100 million. There are a few other tweaks and things around the store. So this settlement still needs to be approved by the same judge that issued the ruling in the Epic Games case, and we have a hearing on that coming up soon. So in a sense, we, we're, just gonna, we're gonna be back in court with the same, broadly the same issues and the same judge, and we'll see what she makes of that settlement because there was some pushback against it. And then secondly, there's the injunction itself, which Apple is hoping to secure a stay on. They're basically asking the judge to stay her own order that ordered them to uh, remove rules that prohibit uh, developers from steering, uh, steering customers within their apps to alternative payment mechanisms. So she will be considering that. That's a hearing a little later on. Epic Games is, of course, uh, vigorously opposing that. Um, and then Apple, if it doesn't succeed in that, can go on and appeal to the Ninth Circuit uh, if she doesn't agree to uh, stay her own injunction. Well, how do developers feel about this and what is at stake for Apple if it doesn't, in fact, get a stay on the injunction? So the the settlement with the small developers fundamentally doesn't change anything about the payment mechanism on Apple's App Store, which was the big gripe is that this 30% commission fee applies to all apps selling digital goods on the store. And the settlement doesn't do anything to address that. It, it, it removes some, some of Apple's rules, but it, it doesn't really do anything to dislodge Apple's control of the ecosystem as a whole. So the big critics obviously say this is sort of a sham, um, so that your Spotify's and your match groups and, of course, Epic Games uh, say that this doesn't sort of move the dial significantly in terms of how Apple controls the, the ecosystem. Well, you could uh, see perhaps the Department of Justice in the US has been looking into Apple's App Store uh, for, for some time now. And also the states that are suing Google on, on similar themes, they could uh, ask to intervene in the case and file amicus briefs and sort of try and persuade the judge to say, look, this isn't, this isn't a fair settlement. This, this doesn't really get to the root uh, issue here. And in terms of what's at stake uh, for Apple, well, if the injunction comes into effect in December, as it's um, currently supposed to, if, it's, if Apple doesn't succeed in, in, in its appeals, then you'll have a situation where the store is basically cracked open so that when you go on your iPhone and you go into an app and you go to buy a subscription, for example, you will find some sort of link within the app that says, hey, click on this link um, and we'll take you momentarily outside of the app and you can enter your credit card details and whatnot and we'll charge, in that case, the developer's a much lower fee than the 30% commission fee that, uh, that Apple charges. So it's a huge revenue stream for Apple, and it's unclear at this point exactly how much that would impact that revenue stream. But we do know that there are companies lining up to provide those services, what they, they, they claim are seamless payment services, uh, which basically would involve directing customers outside the store. So there's uh, two, two companies quite prominently developing these products and, and ready to, hopefully, they say, ready to launch these products in December, um, Paddle and Revenue Cap. And then from Apple's perspective, the thing at stake here is, well, the security and privacy that we built into our store is is at stake here. Because the minute that our control of our ability to monitor all payments within our app store goes and you can start submitting an app that can direct consumers outside of the app store to an alternative payment mechanism, then immediately you open it up to things like fraud. So they're they're very much playing up that, that, that claim that it will undercut the, the, the basic product itself that Apple offers, which is uh, privacy protections. When you go on the App Store, you know you're safe. Now, you mentioned earlier on that uh, Apple is uh, still very much charging that 30% uh, commission on uh, app purchases, but Google has recently announced that it will, in fact, cut its commission fees for the Play Store. Uh, so why does that matter? Why is that uh, an important development? 
Well, what's interesting is the 30% fee has been a policy imposed by both Google and Apple. And they very much have argued in the past that it's sort of an industry standard. Um, And if you're uh, a developer offering any sort of subscription services, so for example, a newspaper, when you uh, initially buy a subscription through either Google Play Store or Apple App Store, then they will take a 30% uh, commission fee on that. But if the year after you renew that that subscription rolls over, then they cut it to 15%. So their, their policies were more or less completely aligned. And the argument was this is this is just how the app, app ecosystem works. And this is a this is a fee that sort of reflects the value of the services we provide. So when last week Google announced that it was going to remove that upfront 30% charge on subscriptions, um, and also they said that it could be even lower for things like eBooks, uh, they're basically undercutting Apple on price. They're saying if you're an Android developer, or, or rather if you are offering an app on Android, uh, then you're going to be paying much less to Google than if you're offering an app on iOS. So it's sort of a sign of breaking ranks, I think. Uh, and it's it's sort of in terms of the optics of it, Apple can no longer say, "Look, this is an industry standard," because Google is now offering the same services for effectively half the price. I'm assuming that developers would be happy with these developments. I mean, the prospect of uh, being charged 15% rather than 30% must be particularly enticing. Absolutely. There's, there's no question, I think, that, that they would be welcomed by developers. In fact, in the initial press release that Google put out, they included um, a quote from, for example, the Bumble CEO, who said that it was very welcome and that this money could now be sort of funneled into more productive things in developing their product, improving their product. But it, it doesn't really get to the core of the issue. Uh, what's very clear from Google's decision, and, and the way they describe it, the decision to cut the fees themselves, is that it's not come about through any sort of competitive pressure in the marketplace. They're still controlling the price of app distribution, effectively, on the Android ecosystem, if you accept the fact that Google Play is really the only dominant player on any Android devices. Obviously, they have a slightly different business, a very different business model from Apple in that they license out their operating system to smartphone devices, which is more complicated. So it, it certainly looks like Google's playing nicer and they've had a pretty bad year with the, around the Play Store so far. It was widely perceived that it was their bid to start collecting their fee on in-app transactions in South Korea that resulted was partly responsible for the backlash that happened in South Korea, which ended up with a full law being passed, which basically prohibited both Apple and Google from having a mandatory payment system on their stores. So I think it's a sign uh, of Google budging on under that global regulatory and political pressure. And if you see the most vocal critics of Google and Apple, so the Coalition for App Fairness here uh, represents both small and large developers, they say that it doesn't get to the root of the issue. It doesn't remove the control that Google operates over the whole ecosystem. All it is is a gesture of goodwill that they've lowered the price, but there's no, there's still no competition there between payment systems. Uh, Mike, finally, and in just a few words, lawmakers in the US are also looking at Apple and Google's app stores. Where do things stand on that front? So in August, a twin set of bills were introduced in the Senate and the House uh, in the US with bipartisan support. So that's legislation is sitting there. It's, it's, it's part of a pile of legislation that's heaping up in Congress uh, aimed at curbing the market power of uh, big tech. So we have to wait and see, but it's, it's certainly, a, it must surely be a factor in the pressure that's being applied on both Google and Apple here around their app stores and making them shift slowly over time uh, their policies. 
Mike, thank you so much for uh, speaking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Michael Acton is a senior MLEX correspondent joining us from the MLEX Bureau in San Francisco, and we'll be posting not one but two of his pieces of analysis dealing with recent developments at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best and the very latest of MLEX's reporting and analysis. And you heard Mike mention in passing the extraordinary regulatory developments in South Korea on this front, and subscribers may want to check out the portfolio of work from our team in Seoul covering the Korea Communications Commission probe and its subsequent decision to force both Apple and Google to allow developers to use other payment systems in their apps. Jenny Lee, in particular, has covered every twist and turn of that story. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Panicki. Thank you for making it this far. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Credit Suisse has found itself on the receiving end of some serious penalties of late over financial crime failings. Now, on the one hand, this is a story of the problem that any international company can encounter when doing business internationally, particularly in developing countries. But it's also a warning shot for anyone under the misapprehension that kickbacks or bribes that they may be willing to pay in countries that are thousands of miles away from the United States coast can't be pursued by American prosecutors. Martin Coyle has been following the story for MLEX, and he joins me now from London. So, Martin, tell me what Credit Suisse has done and what this story is all about. Yes, James. So, um, Credit Suisse yeah, was hit with a $475 million penalty uh, following a settlement with uh, US and UK investigators, and this was to do with its involvement in a scheme to bribe officials in Mozambique in connection with um, so-called tuna bonds. Uh, And it entered into a three-year deferred prosecution agreement with the US Department of Justice. And the settlement also saw action from the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission in the US and the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, as well as um, action from the Swiss Financial Regulator. So it's truly a a global action that settled this uh, uh, long-running case Uh, And as part of the settlement, it will pay $99 million to the SEC, $175 million to the Department of Justice, and £147 million, which is about $203 million, uh, to the UK's Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, As part of its action in the UK, it's also agreed to uh, forgive $200 million worth of debt owed to Mozambique. So there's some big sums involved there, James. Yes, indeed. I mean, that all adds up to a a very large penalty. So what did the bank do wrong to deserve uh, such a punishment? So, yes. uh, So between 2012 and 2016, the bank entered into Mozambique as part of a deal to help the country's fishing industry. Um, Now, it issued $2 billion worth of loans, uh, along with this Russian bank uh, VTB, which was also fined, uh, unfortunately, about $200 million worth of those lo- loans were siphoned off to corrupt officials and uh, bankers involved in the deal. Three former uh, Credit Suisse bankers pleaded guilty in 2019 in a federal court in New York 
uh, as part of this related uh, wrongdoing, um, and they haven't yet been sentenced yet, so that's, that's still to come. Now, we're talking about a Swiss bank. We're talking about corruption in Mozambique, which raises the question, how did the UK get involved in this and uh, what did the Financial Conduct Authority find out? Right, yes. So that, that, that part's quite simple. So the, the use of the bank's London unit and its um, authorisation by the um, FCA led to the uh, regulator in, in, in London uh, getting involved now, as part of its action, it pointed to uh, serious shortcomings at the lender and a poor culture at the bank. Uh, and it said that Credit Suisse had failed to prioritise the fighting of corruption risks in its emerging markets division, which, which went into um, Mozambique. And a quote here from the FCA, uh, Time and again, there was insufficient challenge within Credit Suisse or scrutiny and inquiry in the face of important risk factors and warnings. Uh, and it said that senior in- executives in bank control functions were told of the serious risks of bribery in Mozambique, but these warnings were seemingly ignored. So, uh, you know, as part of this, we, we looked through the, um, the final notice. Uh, so, you know, one, one glaring example, I suppose, was there was an internal report or a, a report that uh, was commissioned by the bank as it was going into the Mozambique. And uh, this report warned of an involvement of a contractor known as... The, the master of the kickbacks. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> the, the red flag should have um, been well and truly raised uh, then. And um, this this master of the kickbacks, um, great name, um, secretly paid more than $50 million uh, in bribes um, to Credit Suisse's deal team to secure um, the favourable loan, loan terms, um, the FCA said. So, you know, a lot of red flags were missed by the bank, James. Yes, indeed. Now, that explains the UK involvement. It obviously went through the UK, the London office. Uh, But as for the US side, uh, enforcers there used an unusual tactic to drag the bank into action uh, in the United States. Well, this was something um, uh, colleague Richard uh, Vanderford in uh, New York, uh, we we read about this in our article on on MLEX, and he pointed out that... um, sort of different from the usual way um, the US sort of brought this action. They, they usually go for these bribery cases under the um, FCPA, um, but instead in this instance they used the uh, wire statute to take action. Now, what they did, they argued that the, the US investors were harmed by this um, bribery scheme and because they weren't told about the um, corruption involved in, in, you know, involved with these loans. So this meant that they could take action despite there being no... U.S. subsidiary involved, and again, uh, sort of shows the the long reach of these uh, U.S. prosecutors in you know enabled uh, enabling it to take action against you know a Swiss bank with a with a London uh, branch. So, and and surely something like this would put the fear of God in in many companies operating internationally. The thought that the U.S. or U.S. prosecutors could get involved with such a tenuous link is something that presumably a lot of uh, board members would be thinking about quite seriously. Well, exactly. It sends, a, it, it sends another warning that this is another way in for for US prosecutors to, to, to get revenue for themselves and to, to, you know, for these banks to be to be careful that although there might not be that, you know, link towards the um, the US on the face of it, there is still a way that, that, that prosecutors, prosecutors can come in and when they do come in, they're likely to impose these heavy penalties. 
Okay, so is that it for Credit Suisse, or is there still more to come? Uh, well, for them, unfortunately not. Um, and although uh, the bank was keen to sort of draw a line under it and um, say it learnt its lessons, uh, it doesn't quite end there. So um, we've got the Swiss regulator, and although it didn't impose a fine on the bank, uh, it ordered the bank to set up a, a new internal reporting system to, to prevent this happening again. Um, and it's also opened enforcement action against three unnamed uh, individuals, which could lead to further embarrassment down the line as we move forward. And um, perhaps more importantly, uh, in London, the bank faces a civil action um, brought by creditors involved in the uh, loan scheme, and they are seeking compensation uh, for this um, for this big mess. So that's due to start in uh, London in autumn 2023. Um, I, don't know, I would very much guess that this is going to lead to more lurid headlines and if the bank does lose this case, there's, there'll be another big bill to settle. Martin Coyle, master of the podcasts, thank you for following the story for us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Martin Coyle is a senior correspondent covering bribery and corruption issues from our offices in London. And the analysis he wrote with our New York correspondent, Richard Vanderford, is on our website right now, and it's ready for you to read. Our website address is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. And click on the News Hub tab for the very latest reporting and analysis from the MLEX team. Sadly, that's where we have to leave things for this week, but we are committed to showing up in your feed again next Friday at more or less the same time. I'm James Paniki, MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor, and from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thanks for your company. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now.